Hi, everybody. I'm Matt. And I'm Steve. And this is Marvel Reread Club. So, things may sound a little bit different today. I'm not sure. I am actually visiting Matt in Evanston, and we decided to go ahead and record this episode on his omnidirectional mic here on his computer desk. Uh, we'll see how this goes, but one way or the other, it's nice to be doing this in person. Yes, so I can actually see Steve in person. We have never once been in the same room when we recorded this podcast because we started during COVID. We weren't one of these podcasts that was in person and then went remote during COVID. And of course, we live in different states. Different time zones, even. Different time zones. But here we are in the same state, so we are giving you the closest thing you've ever gotten to a live episode of this show. So by the time you're hearing this, Steve will have appeared at Heroes Con in North Carolina to talk about this podcast. I suppose if we had really been on the ball, we could have had me go there too, and we could have arranged to do a live episode at the con or something yeah, like that. I've but, thought uh, of that before. However, as we've talked about, we do a fair amount of editing on this thing, and that we, true. we might not come across too well. <laughs> but I have thought of that. It might be something to do at some point. All right. We have an exciting second half of August 1965. They have gotten rid of two of their stinkers and brought in new features. So I'm going to take a look at your notes. I've never seen what your notes look like and when you have these things. Yeah, those are pretty extensive, aren't they? They are. I, I tried writing notes about that extensive at one point, and then I was like, yeah, no, I'm not doing that. Okay. <laughs> so I'm supposed to do the first book here. This is Strange Tales, number 135. Doctor Strange did not make it onto the cover. Well, he's in the little corner box. The cover is mainly taken up by a gorgeous Jack Kirby cover for... Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., the greatest action thriller of all time. It's got a Hydra agent. So this issue could not have more of an impact on the MCU. We meet for the first time Hydra. We meet for the first time S.H.I.E.L.D. We see, I think for the first time, Nick Fury having his eye patch, correct? Yes, I think this is the first be-patched Nick Fury that has appeared in here. We've got a core discover where he is pulling out a gun from his suit, but we are seeing a x-ray of him pulling the gun from his suit while it is happening and it is very dynamic it says right away this is a super spy book hugely influenced by the tv show man from uncle shield is an acronym and uncle was an acronym on man from uncle they were fighting chaos on no chaos was get smart no idea no i forget what the name of the of the evil organization that we're fighting in man from uncle is it was a similar sort of thing i mean obviously influenced by James Bond, influenced by all of the... What is that sound? What is my cat doing? <laughs> never happened before. I guess the cats are usually downstairs when we record. We're going to start turning into the dollop here, where Gareth is always yelling at his cat, Jose. <laughs> yes. They've been publishing Nick Fury comics set in World War II for many years now, and then they had the Nick Fury character show up in modern day without an eye patch in the Fantastic Four, running, basically just working for the CIA. They've had bizarre storyline and adventures going on where Captain America has been writing letters to Nick Fury and desperately hoping Nick Fury would answer his letters. And he's been talking about Nick Fury as if he can get him a job in intelligence somehow. But he's been talking as if Nick Fury already has a job in intelligence. Here, he seems to get it for the first time. So I don't know well, why Cap's been writing him these letters all these months. When he, sh when he showed up in Fantastic Four for the first time in modern day, he was a colonel, basically, quote unquote, in the CIA. Yeah. He was already working in intelligence. It's just they hadn't yet introduced him to this. I mean, this is an international 
organization. Well, they go back and forth on whether it's international or just American, but here it's clearly supposed to be international. He was already working in intelligence, just not this intelligence company. Excuse me. But by the way, Uncle, I looked it up here. Apparently in the pilot movie, their adversary was Wasp. But then for most of the show, it was Thrush. Thrush. And yes. as parents, both of us, I can say that, yes, Thrush is pretty malevolent. <laughs> no? You, you, your kid never had Thrush? No. Anyway, believe me, it is malevolent. <laughs> but you are saying whether or not S.H.I.E.L.D. is international. In fact, S.H.I.E.L.D. is the Supreme Headquarters International Espionage Law Enforcement Division. Yes. Which is what it stands for here. It will stand for other things in the future. So let's go ahead and jump into this issue. We begin, bizarrely, Nick Fury is in a giant mold as if he is getting orthodontia work done and they put the mold on your teeth while they're doing a mold for his entire body, which he is gooping in. I just love how Kirby is like, there's going to be some dead space between his legs in this drawing. And so I'm just going to fill that in with a little Kirby science. And uh, just this. Okay, the way you're describing that, it makes it sound like the right is at his crotch. <laughs> you're talking about from his knees down. Between his calves. <laughs> just a little curvy signs between his calves. Yes. But he has no idea what's going on. What in places is going on? I got a call to report to the Pentagon for an LMD. Then they stick me inside this nutty electric wash tub. The only thing missing is bugs. He waltzing around. So, generally speaking, in this issue, Nick Fury has no idea what's going on in the entire issue. He has never heard of S.H.I.E.L.D. He has never heard of HYDRA. He is just seemingly a colonel in the Army. No reference to his previous intelligence work, who is suddenly being sent to do all this stuff. So they make this mold. Apparently the mold... It includes the uh, cigar. Yes, including the cigar. <laughs> Apparently they're able to make this mold real quick because suddenly they're like, okay, we've made the mold. Now we've made all of these life model decoys of you, which I don't think I've ever been mentioned before. This is a new shield yeah, thing. It's, brand, idea it's that... brand new right here. And I, I will also say that a lot of stuff from this particular issue ended up being used in the shield TV show, yeah. which actually I did watch from start to finish, believe it or not. <laughs> well, yeah, life model decoys showed up in like the fifth season or something like that. And um, the flying, well, the flying car, I guess came up yeah. with Avengers, but yeah. So then suddenly Fury comes up onto the street and finds several life model decoys of himself, several androids, android versions of himself walking around. And then suddenly mysterious people come out of the woodwork and start shooting and killing them all. At first, it seems like, oh, this is just a demonstration. It's like, no, this is real. These these are real assassins that really think they're killing Nick Fury. They then drive off of them, and then a evil super science ship comes on and bombs their car, but they're in such a fancy super spy car that they can just drive right through being bombed. And then they shoot missiles out of the back of their super spy car to blow up the ship that's bombing them. And they're all very casual about this whole thing. It then turns out to be a flying car, which will be one of the main iconic images of S.H.I.E.L.D., but nowhere near as iconic as the image we're about to get to. It turns out that very cool shot of one of the motorcycle mods that has been following them uh, speaks into the little TV in his helmet to report into Hydra. So then we meet Hydra, and Hydra have their iconic tunics. The Supreme Hydra has a dong, which will not necessarily be something that will continue on. So we should be Is clear. That a dog? That looks like a panther or something like that. That could be a panther. I guess so. I think so. We should be clear here that the original Supreme Hydra was not Baron Von Strucker, that eventually Baron Von Strucker is the person we will think of as being the Supreme Hydra. 
But here it is a mystery who he is, and it will eventually be revealed, but it will not be Baron Sarkar. He will be the second head of Hydra. Now, again, this is very influenced by Thrush, but it's also very influenced by Spectre in the James Bond things in that we begin with someone has disappointed the Supreme Hydra, and he's like, oh, then I will subject you to something where you will be killed. And turns out the person who is killing you with this bizarre thing where they swing around on these giant H's attacking each other, and the person who's killed him is actually a beautiful Bond woman Hydra agent when she takes off her hood. And uh, she will become a major character going forward. We cut back to... Now, this is sort of confusing because Fury has taken off into the sky in the flying car. And then we cut away. And then we cut back to where he is in the S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters. Well, we'll eventually find out he has no idea where he is. So I guess he, the windows were blacked out in the car or something. Or he was or, blindfolded. <laughs> or he was blindfolded. They put a hood on his head. They gave him knockout drops somehow. Yeah. Yeah. It's very confusing. He then meets Tony Stark who, interestingly enough, even though he's got his own book, will be sort of a recurring character in this book. Gorgeous Kirby panel on the top of page nine, where he goes to a meeting of all of the people from all around the world to talk about Hydra. Tony Stark wants to prove that Hydra is bad, so he's rigged up a huge globe with a gigantic multi-armed being on it, which he then shoots with a big gun to see, like, this is a transistorized blast gun can smash this globe, but a human weapon is needed to smash the entire Hydra network. A man who will devote his life to it. A man like you, Fury. And it was me. And so Fury is completely baffled why they would want to hire him to do this. He says, I'm just a bare knuckles kind of guy, a barroom brawler. They made me a colonel, but I'm still a three-striper at heart. And he has no idea why they're doing this. Then Fury realizes that his chair has a bomb in it, and he quickly runs to a porthole. He says, I don't know what's outside this porthole, but I can't let it blow up in here. And he throws it outside the portal. Well, then we get one of the most spectacular pages that Kirby ever got to draw. It turns out they are in a flying helicarrier, which is something you would see quite a bit of in the MCU. Now, the design of the helicarrier, tremendously bizarre. It's not something that could ever land on land. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the whole point is supposed to be that this thing isn't ever supposed to land. It's supposed to always be a mobile headquarters so it can, you never know where it is. But um, I just remember this full page splash was copied very closely by John Byrne in his She-Hulk graphic novel. And I remember just being blown away by that panel when I thought Byrne had been the first one to draw it. And later I went back and saw this and I'm like, hey, Byrne is just basically practically tracing this thing. It is a gorgeous panel. It would provide iconic chemistry for the MCU later on. I would think you would want to make a helicarrier that could land on land occasionally without having this huge, bizarre protuberance coming out of the bottom of it. But they did not. Presumably it could land in water. Or presumably that thing might be a detachable something or other. It looks like it might be a little, it could be a stubby little plane of some sort. So Nick Perry, who was just saying, I'm a barroom brawler, I can't lead a spy organization, suddenly snaps into command and he says, grab every technician on the tub, find out who wired this room, move it, postcards at every porthole, come commandeer all parachutes, nobody leaves this ship. And he starts barking orders and then he suddenly realizes, oh, I guess I can lead S.H.I.E.L.D. <laughs> Tony Stark says, gentlemen, my work here is done. S.H.I.E.L.D. has found a leader. Jerry says, looks like somebody has to smash Hydra, so it might as well be me. And then it says, but Hydra is immortal. Cut off a limb and two more shall take its place, as we shall see in the next month's incredible episode of the Saga of S.H.I.E.L.D. Now, of course, Hydra, the idea is cut off a head and two more heads take its place. It's a creature with like nine heads and just like a normal number of limbs. But from the very beginning, Hydra in the comics is always shown as a one-headed creature with a 
one of limbs. So it, the whole organization should really be called Octopus, not Hydra. <laughs> well, and the, the Tiger symbol that ends up being created later for them looks like a skull with octopus tentacles coming yes, out of it. very much so. So they don't understand what a Hydra is. They're confusing <laughs> it with an octopus. But that is this issue. And I think this issue is absolutely fantastic. I think this is just a gorgeous issue, beautifully written by uh, Lee or Lee and Kirby or just Kirby, depending on how you want to spin that. Beautifully illustrated by Kirby and beautifully inked by, is this Ayers? I really like Ayers inking. I sometimes really don't like Ayers inking on Kirby, but this is one of the cases where I do like it. It's quite good. And just a huge, huge addition to the Marvel Universe. The MCU certainly would not be the same without this issue. Both of the books we're going to have introduced this episode, Nick Fury and Namor, are books that they're going to try to make work for the next three or four years. We're taking up half a book, and then they're going to get a full book, and they're going to go for a while, a year or two, in a full book. And then they're going to peter out, and they're both going to have a hard time sustaining a full-time book for the next 40 years. And, you know, I can see why maybe Nick Fury didn't survive much past the 60s because the spy fad was such a fad. But I mean, James Bond made it through. (laughs) Yeah, James Bond made it through. Reading this, it feels like this is going to last forever. It feels like this is a strong enough beginning to a feature that it could last forever. And indeed, you know, Nick Fury will continue to get his own book occasionally and sustain it occasionally, but never for more than a couple years at a time. Reading this, it feels like he's going to last forever. I'm loving this intro. Yes. I really liked this uh, introduction of S.H.I.E.L.D. more than I really expected that I would the first time I read it. And one thing I will say is, as much as I'm like, oh yeah, Ayers did a pretty good job inking this, in a few months, we're going to get about three issues maybe inked by John Severin. Yes. And those are those are some of my favorite visual Marvel comics of the entire 60s. <laughs> They're really fantastic. So yeah. I'm, just, I'm just chomping at the bit waiting to get to those here. Yes, those are going to be gorgeous. And Severin Ink and Kirby, you wouldn't think would work, especially on a book like S.H.I.E.L.D. I think it works beautifully, but we'll yeah. see those when we get to them. Yes. Let's go ahead and go on to a more familiar back half of the book, Doctor Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts, Eternity Beckons. So for the first time, we have pawning credit given to Steve Ditko. Written and edited by Marvel's mystical madman, Stan Lee. Plotted and illustrated by fandom's favorite fiend, Steve Deco. Lettered and bordered by comicdom's cuddlesome conjurer, Sam Rosen. We have a beautiful splash page showing everything that's going to happen in the issue. So we're still in the middle of the huge Dormammu, Baron Mordo epic, where Baron Mordo is chasing after Doctor Strange, powered by Dormammu. Doctor Strange has arrived in London. He is searching for the meaning of the word eternity. He sees a Baron Mordo goon at the airport, but puts the whammy on him and sends him away. We get a gorgeous panel of Doctor Strange approaching the castle of Sir Baskerville, who is a <laughs> conjurer who he thinks may know something about eternity. Sir Baskerville, who is missing a hand, tells him, wait right here by the fire. Meanwhile, we see Dormammu rewinding his security cameras and finding out who almost released the mindless ones and figures out it was Clea. He does not mention here he has sworn not to attack Clea, given that how strictly he has stuck to his vow when he swore not to attack Doctor Strange. You would think he'd be worried about swearing not to attack Clea too, but he's not. We then get Sir Baskerville. Baron Mordo says he will restore Sir Baskerville's hand if he betrays Doctor Strange. So again, we still have not named Caecilius, but Baron Mordo's main goon will eventually be named as Caecilius, and Caecilius will go on to be the number one or uh, one of the main baddies in the first Doctor Strange movie. But he is still unnamed here. It's just sort of the Baron Mordo baddie with the Mario the plumber Italian mustache. 
for some reason, Baron Morrow doesn't go himself at first. It's not clear to me why he doesn't just instantly go himself to confront Doctor Strange and said he sends Kaecilius. And then at the end, he's like, oh, wait, I should have gone. I'm like, yeah, dude. But uh, Doctor Strange is seemingly still waiting by the fire when Sir Basketball comes in. It's like, aha, I'm going to attack you. I brought a Baron Morrow goon with me. But it was just an illusion of Doctor Strange. They're like, where did the real Doctor Strange go? Suddenly they see, of course, Sir Baskerville, like any good English lord, has a bunch of knights' armor up around his castle. And he sees one moving. And they're like, oh, Doctor Strange has gotten inside that knight's armor and is trying to get away. But then Kaiselius starts shoots bolt after bolt after bolt, not doing any good. Like, oh, is he? How powerful is he? And then goes chasing after him. And then whack. Doctor Strange has just been hiding behind the door and punches Kaecilius in the stomach and knocks him out. He puts the whammy on Sir Baskerville. I love this. And it turns out that he has just rolled up his cape. So we've just had a little bit of hints of another thing that'll be big in the MCU of the cape as something he can control from and, and, afar. And kind of almost like its own character uh, yeah. in the movies. Yes. Le- less so here, but you know, you, you can see where they got that from. Yes, so he is sort of, I really, almost for the first time in the comics, controlling his cape from afar. He's rolled up, he's put it in the armor, he's making the armor run around. Uh, but There's been he one other time just, he's done it. I remember noting yeah. one, one earlier time. But he has just been waiting to just punch this dude in the stomach, which he does. And so then he searches Kaecilius' mind, finally gets full confirmation that Dormammu is behind all this. He then searches Sir Rascal's mind. The, my number one complaint about this issue is that he makes no progress at all in terms of the overriding plot because it turns out Sir Baskerville knows nothing about eternity. I wish that he'd gotten you know, one more hint from Sir Baskerville, like, oh, I'm seeing an image of a cave or something you know, that could send him off in the next issue. I never wanted to be like, okay, I'm right back where I started at the end of the story. But um, a bunch of ectoplasmic goons come. He rises up out of the castle and confronts them directly, tells them Doctor Strange is fled to the netherworld. You must follow him there sends them away, so he sort of hypnotizes the ectoplasmic goons. Baron Mordo finally realizes, why didn't I just go myself? I should have gone myself, but Doctor Strange has run off into the night with, as I said, nothing to show for this month's issue. I wish he had gotten a little bit of something, but this is a gorgeous issue. I love any issue in which Doctor Strange gets to use his magic powers or his magic items in a clever way that involves some sort of physical trick rather than just diving deeper into himself or shining the eye of Agamotto a little brighter, <laughs> actually punching the dude out. I love, I love this issue. It is fantastic. It is beautiful. What did you think? I liked it. What you were talking about with uh, not making any progress in this stuff didn't bother me as much just because there was a lot of fun action and a lot of fantastic visuals that were in here. In terms of the brilliant images in here on page nine, panel four, right before Doctor Strange starts hypnotizing the ethereal goons there. That is a wonderful, eerie, ethereal-looking panel. This is another place where I really see his influence on Frank Miller. Oh, yeah. And for that matter, the panel immediately above that, where Doctor Strange is kind of looking up into his into our right. Also, that, I mean, looks kind of Frank Miller-ish to me, too. <laughs> yeah, it does. So I very much enjoyed this issue. I love the eerie, creepy art. It's just uh, lots happened, uh, even though, as you point out, nothing happened, but lots happened. <laughs> and it was lots of fun. Yes, fantastic issue. Okay, that brings us to Tales of Suspense number 68 with Iron Man and Captain America. That's yours. Uh, Yes, I'm stuck with this one. (laughs) The first half is 
terrible. If a man be mad. So apparently at this point, Tony still thinks he's cracking up after Count Neferia, who is now calling himself the Dream Master, was trying to play with his mind. And apparently it is still having some repercussions. So the credits. A story so wild it can only be conceived by the merry Marvel madmen. Edited by Stan Lee, who hasn't slept since. Written by Al Hartley, who never could sleep. Art by Don Heck, who was under sedation. Inked by Mickey Demio, who couldn't have visitors. Lettered by Sam Rosen. Who knows? Again, Al Hartley, son of, and I mistakenly called him Senator Hartley in the previous episode. He is He was Representative Hartley. Taft was the Senator Hartley was the representative. Tony still thinks he's going a little bit mad. Well, first, let's talk about just how truly terrible this first page is. This first page oh, yeah. just has a sort of prediction of him going mad and imagining monsters in his mind as he's gripping his head. The shadow could not be worse that he is casting. It just, I mean, these bug-eyed monsters, anytime Heck tries to draw a monster or a bug-eyed alien or anything like that, I just feel like it is so... Ugly and not in a good way. <laughs> so it's, yes, you want bug-eyed monsters to be ugly. I realize this, but not like this. They're just so tacky. They're so, they look like, they yeah. look like bad monster movie costumes. Yeah. They yeah. don't look like they have any life to them. Yeah, I, I agree. And it looks like he's in a dungeon yes, or something for like some that, reason. which makes no sense. That is emblematic of the rest of the story we're about to see. DeMeo not doing heck any favors. I don't feel like this is a necessarily a good combo. It, it gets better as it goes. I feel like page two, where you have heck more in his element of just rich man and his co-workers, DeMeo is not ruining heck there. But when heck really needs him, when he's doing stuff he can't handle well, DeMeo is not saving him at all. Bottom of page two, they have some of that love triangle stuff that is not really well handled. And then Pepper says, oh, you've got a letter from your cousin. Tony then is having a sort of internal monologue and he thinks to himself, I can't fail him, meaning his cousin. I just wish he'd stop failing himself. He's had the same education and the same opportunities I've had. He's just weak. I was thinking of whether that might have some relation to Al Hartley, comic book artist and writer, son of Representative Hartley, whose yes. name we still remember now. So then we see that Stark's cousin has run up huge gambling debts in Monte Carlo in casinos that Count Neferia owns. So Count Neferia says, okay, you go and do this stuff to mess with Tony Stark, and I will wipe clean your debts. And then meanwhile, the cousin seems like, eh, I'd like to put my cousin and put him down. So yeah, it's a double win for me. Tony starts seeing these various things like, oh, there's a rocket ship. And it turns out it's just from some kind of illusion projector. And he calls the cops and the cops are like, what are you talking about? Uh, anyway, uh, at one point we get this terrible dialogue. Uh, once again, an internal monologue, I should say, from Iron Man. He's trying to figure out what this rocket ship looking thing is. Tony thinks, what in the name of a twisted transistor can it be? Which, A, is a terrible line, and B, we're not going to take it anymore. Yes. Uh, so he gets inside this rocket ship, and he's thinking to himself, huh, that gizmo in the center has all the earmarks of a thermonuclear device. And it's taken away. Nice as Big Ben. <laughs> Holy Hannah! Go up any second. But then am I going to do anything? No, I'm going to alert the bomb squad, even though I'm Iron Man. <laughs> the bomb squad comes out, of course, the... Rocket ship was another illusion being projected by a 
Tony Stark's cousin on behalf of Count Nefaria slash Dream Master. And so everybody's becoming convinced that Tony is crazy, including his employees. Uh, Senator Byrd is getting word that Stark is having these mental problems, and he thinks this is his moment to try and cancel his government contracts. And then just the weirdest thing happens. Actual alien invaders show up. Not this, just alien invaders, moon, moon men. Moon men. It's <laughs> Actual like, this moon is, this men. This is 1962 Marvel <laughs> right here. Did you notice the moon men's individual names? No, what was that? Edom and Gouda. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably the most entertaining thing about this entire story. <laughs> But anyway, moon men show up. And I guess. I mean, the joke is that they say the moon is made of cheese. That's the joke there. Oh, I guess so. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Then Iron Man defeats the moon men. The moon men, of course, are like, oh, if all Earth people are like this, we can't possibly invade, which is, <laughs> I thought we left these stories behind a few years ago. So we defeat the moon men. They leave. And of course, now there is actual evidence of an actual alien invasion. So but then everybody sees this and says, okay, you're not crazy. Then Stark sends his cousin back to Monte Carlo, free of charge, on my private plane. And of course, that's just going to put him back in the hands of Count Nefaria, who is unhappy with him at this point. And that's pretty much the whole thing. I was really confused when I got to the end of this, because the whole switch from, oh, this is just all a big illusion hoax thing that's being pulled on Tony, to, oh, wait, no, this is an actual invasion by Moon Men. It kind of went by me the yes, first time me too. This. I had to go back and be like, oh, is that thing where he says, oh, put the little illusion thing up there. It's like, wait, why are there two of them? And so at that point, it was supposed to, but it's, the, the story's dumb. I don't want to spend much time, any more time on it. <laughs> Anything else you want to say about it? When the actual moon went up here, Tony thinks, I defy anyone to tell me I'm seeing things now. I can feel the heat of those retro rockets right through my beryllium underwear. Yes. And nobody could dream up characters like that. It's like, well, yes, unfortunately, John Heck can because uh, somebody had to dream them up. But also this whole story hinges on like, you know, he's been faking alien invasions to, that then I can't prove and it makes me look crazy. But now there's been a real alien invasion. So I can prove to everybody I wasn't crazy. It's like, but can you prove it? Because there were no TV cameras shooting this battle. And Peter Parker wasn't shooting any photographs of it. At the end, he's like, oh, I can prove I wasn't crazy because there's a crater where the alien <laughs> ship took off. That's his only proof. And the fact that Morgan was there, but Morgan was the guy trying to convince everybody he was crazy. He's like, oh, Morgan can tell you all what happened. Well, no, obviously he's the last person you should trust to do this. The only evidence he has, so that somebody says, there's no question about it. This crater verifies your story, Morgan. Your cousin is going to be mighty proud. You've cleared his name. So why would Morgan clear his name? And why would a creator prove anything? Makes no sense. In 1965, having there be actual people living in the moon. <laughs> they mentioned at some point that like this is a moon base or something like that. They're, they're a little wishy-washy with that. This paper became less valuable after this was printed on it. <laughs> this was really terrible. Uh, the only redeeming quality of it is Edom and Gouda. <laughs> Yes, I suppose so. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, I, I actually I had here in my notes the beryllium underwear as well, which I don't think we've ever heard beryllium mentioned as a metal that has anything to do with anything that he does. But there you have it. I say in my notes, terrible art. Why can't Coletta ink the heck books to concentrate the badness? Instead, we have Coletta ruining Kirby and Colin. Then we've got Heck and DeVeo, whereas DeVeo does a perfectly fine job on Kirby. It is just a tragedy. 
upon a tragedy. It's interesting having Count Nefaria back for like a second issue on a row in Iron Man. I guess he's like officially an Iron Man villain now and not an Avengers villain. I was saying he's sort of half glam. He's sort of still got the earrings, but for the most part, he's gone back to how he was dressed in his original Kirby appearance. I say the Senate will never vote to censor Tony Stark now. I say, why not? Just because of a crater? <laughs> <laughs> well, also they, they put censor and I think they meant censure. Yes, I think you're right. But also, I ask, does the public know about the existence of aliens at this point? Like, there have been so many alien invasions. Like, there have been seemingly hundreds of alien invasions we've read about in Marvel Comics. Has there ever been one that's risen to the level of general public knowledge? I mean, the Super Scroll, uh, you know, had a huge thing going on in, in New York City. You he know? had a flag. He planted a flag. <laughs> exactly. He planted a flag. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So you can tell people, like, Iron Man's not crazy. Actual Moon Men invaded, and people are going to be like, oh, whoa, I was so worried about Iron Man. They're not going to be like, Moon Men? (laughs) (laughs) At the end end of my notes, it says, Moon Men? Really? Lee seems to actively hate this book now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, remember, Al Hartley wrote it. Yeah, that's why Lee is like, all right, whatever, Al Hartley, you write it. Don Heck, you draw it. Those opening credits just really sounded like he didn't, uh, (laughs) like, he was not happy with this story oh that's right the other thing i was going to say you were like why can't they put coletta on heck and concentrate all the badness in one place they do ink each other at one point in the next few months and it works surprisingly well oh my god put them together put them together i honestly believe i honestly believe that if they had made coletta hex regular inker both of their reputations would be better today than they are uh Oh, you're it's, killing me. It, it's, it's a shame. Right, let's get okay. to the much better second half of the yes. book. Yes, so Captain America, Tales from the Perilous Past. So this is the Sentinel and the Spy. Last we saw, Captain America had just broken out of his spell of being turned into a Nazi automaton, basically, right as he was about to kill someone who was theoretically Dwight Eisenhower, although he doesn't really look like him here. And so he snaps back to his regular person and starts taking care of the Nazis whom he had come in with. And there's some great fight scenes uh, with a room full of Nazis. And then there's a room full of American soldiers who come in at the same time. This is Frank Ray inking Jack Kirby and doing a fantastic job. Yes, yes, thank you. Captain America gives his report of what's going on. Bucky was still dressed up as the Nazi and of course, they're just like, oh, yeah, no, no, he's not a Nazi. He's just a good guy. So <laughs> even though he's still in a Nazi uniform, let's just go ahead and uh, go forward with that. They report back to the Red Skull that this has failed. You would think the Red Skull would be, failure is not an option. You'll be killed now. But no, instead, he's like, silence, details bore me. I have no time to brood over failure. I'm moving on to my next thing. And so there is a secret weapon that the Allies have been developing in England so Project Vanish. I say this is just a very strangely plotted issue. Yes. And that we've had this massive storyline that's been building and building and building and built to this ear-shattering cliffhanger last issue. And then the whole thing just wraps up in two pages, just very, very quickly. And then they're like, okay, and we're going to cram a whole other story into this one issue that very easily could have sustained its own, you know, multi-part story or at least a full issue. I don't understand why they couldn't have devoted this whole issue to wrapping up the ongoing storyline and then saved this story, which is a perfectly fine story for next issue. But anyway. Yeah. We then cut to a prisoner of war camp in England with Nazi prisoners. 
There's a guy who clearly has got a plan. One of the POWs is supposed to accompany, well, Steve Rogers and Bucky transporting something or other somewhere. And so this guy wants to replace the one who has been chosen. They threaten him with death if he does not create a distraction. And the distraction kills him anyway, but at least I guess he's not killed by Nazis. But (laughs) then this guy is able to get onto this transport truck. I'm not 100% sure why they need a Nazi on the transport truck, but apparently they do. Somehow this guy had gotten a fair amount of gas-related weaponry in the camp, and then he doesn't use it (laughs) until he's out of the camp. This is a Nazi in an English prisoner of war camp who has taped underneath his armpit a bunch of gas canisters. And I'm like, you would think that generally speaking, when you're processing prisoners of war, you would look under their armpits. But Theoretically, he didn't have them when he came in. I think that that was my impression, is that they sent him from Germany. They're like, all right, your job, go go to England as a prisoner of war, but in your armpits, you'll have gas canisters. Steve Rogers and Bucky Barnes try to follow the guy after he jumps off the truck in a cloud of smoke. He follows them to a uh, remote home in the British countryside, and everybody there is asleep. Even though it's a Nazi, he can't have just killed all of these people because Comics Code Authority. Everybody's asleep from gas. The gun that Steve Rogers has in his hand is just evaporated by a beam that hits it. And it turns out this Nazi with the sleeping gas now has the secret weapon called Project Vanish, the, the gun is this yeah. really cool Kirby Tech looking thing, and the German soldier is shirtless, and it just I mean, honestly looks like something out of a Schwarzenegger movie from the 80s. Yeah. So then, of course, Bucky and Cap turn into Bucky and Cap. This guy's wielding this uh, weapon. It's clearly very powerful. It's like evaporating or disintegrating entire trees that Captain America is trying to hide behind. And then some tanks show up. It looks like Cap and Bucky might get caught in some, you know, friendly fire or something like that. The bad guy's about to take out the tanks with the vanishing ray. But then Captain America says, says, okay, I tell you what, go ahead and take the weapon. We won't do anything as long as you don't do anything else with it before you leave. Just don't set it to full intensity. He's like, ah, you fool. I hadn't even thought of that. So he turns it up to full intensity and being a prototype, it blows up in his face. Captain America is then um, still unconscious from the explosion. Bucky just drags him off behind a rock where they both turn back into their soldier identities and then come out and, you know, show up as once again the terrible soldiers that they are. And that's the thing. It is lots of action, as you say, oddly plotted, but the action and the art are both, I can find no faults. Yeah. No, and it's a perfectly good story. It's just weird to tack it on to the conclusion of that epic storyline, it even feels like this story could have somehow led from that story. Like, oh, this was all part of Project Vanish. What's Project Vanish? You know, and somehow one could have led to the other. I think the Vanish gun is very cool. I think that it's kind of like the old giant man villain, the Eraser, Mm -hmm. when it chops up a tank on page nine and you just see sort of the half-vanished tank. It looks very cool. Just love Frank Ray's Inc.'s top right panel of page 10, the last page, really looks like Steve Rude, which is always one of the highest compliments I can pay. Oh, wow, yeah. Paul Reinman was the Kirby inker who most made him look like Steve Rude, but Frank Ray is doing a good job as well. <laughs> At the end, they're like, well, that's the end of Project Vanish. 
and now they'll never work on it again. It's like, well, <laughs> why not? Like, it's one thing if this was like a Nazi weapon, and it's right. like we've destroyed their Nazi weapon, they'll never work on it again. Like, no, this is your weapon, dude. You can just like you've got nothing better to do. Go ahead and recreate the weapon. But I guess they they had to explain why this did not turn the tide of World War Two. Yes, you know, once again, the back half of the book is worth your 12 cents, even if the first half of the book, actually the back half of the book has to be worth more than 12 cents to make up for the uh, amount you would have to pay me to read the first <laughs> half again. <laughs> I say that as though you would have to pay me, but we do this podcast completely for free. So you didn't have to pay me to read it. apparently. <laughs> yes. All right. That brings us to Tales to Astonish number 70, the new Tales to Astonish, because Giant Man and the Wasp are gone, and it now says Submariner and the Incredible Hulk in Tales to Astonish number 70. We bow to your demands. His own series at last, Prince Namor the Submariner, startling spectacle, peerless pageantry in the world famous Marvel Manor. Unlike Nick Fury, who got his whole cover here, we still get the Hulk on the bottom of the cover peeking out. So we then begin our first Prince Samuel Summer story, and we have the introduction of a legendary Marvel artist. This, like a lot of the other Marvel artists who have been reintroduced recently, he was an EC artist. His real name is Gene Colan. Was he with EC? I don't know he Gene was. Gene Colan worked with EC. Just at huh. the tail end of EC, Gene Colan did show up in EC with yeah. a very different art style. He, really? he yeah. looked more like Reed Crandall or George Evans right. uh, in his final days huh. at EC. But here he is showing up here with his new art style, developing in the direction of the art style he would become best known for. Unfortunately, we sound like a broken record on this podcast. The phrase, <laughs> our four favorite words on this podcast are ruined by Vince Galetta. But forget everyone else who we ever said was ruined by Vince Galetta. As I've said, I am usually not nearly as as harsh on Vince Galetta as you are. I'm not, you know, I recognize how bad his 60s stuff was. And I think I kind of like some of his 80s stuff. But when I first went through and was reading this book for the first time, I did not realize that Adam Austin was a pseudonym for Gene Colan. And I was looking at these pages and thinking, I can't tell if this penciler is a talentless hack or if Vince Coletta is just really really ruining things. <laughs> Later on, I found out this was actually Gene Colan. I was like, well, question answered. <laughs> Not um, a talentless hack. Yeah. Yes, Gene Colan penciled the very first comic that either of us have read, Avengers number 207. I have an affection for him. Uh, I always have. I'm a big fan of his. He is notoriously hard to ink. Yes. In the 80s, they finally sort of gave up on him. And when he did one of his best books of the 80s, one of his all-time best books, Nathaniel Dusk, two four-part private investigator miniseries. They were very early in terms of being able to reproduce pages with no inks on them whatsoever. And they went ahead and just reproduced them from pencils because he was sort of notoriously hard to ink. Yeah. Famously, the best inker he ever had was Tom Palmer, who started inking him in the late 60s and would ink him a lot in the 70s, inked most of his incredible beloved run on Tomb of Dracula. He does not have Palmer here. So this is a counterfactual thought experiment. Who should have been to me? You know, I feel like anybody would have been better. You know, by the way, we have been saying Frank Ray so far in this podcast. That's Frank Giacoya. We have been saying Mickey DeMeo. That is Mike Esposito. I feel like either of those would have been much better. Ayers would have been better. I feel like it would have been fascinating to see Wally Wood. I'm not sure that would have worked. <laughs> but uh, yeah. he's been doing a little inking. Certainly Wally Wood did a fantastic job with Atlantis and the Submariner back when he last appeared in Daredevil yes. number seven. 
I think that it was smart to go with Gene Cohen, who goes under the name Animosity Hurt, because if I had one word to describe the pencils of Gene Cohen, it would be fluid. Yeah. He is famous for having very fluid yeah. pencils, and Summerner lives in fluid. <laughs> and like, okay, fluid pencils for a fluidy world. Sure, why not? But then if I had to describe Vince Claude's inks in one word, that word would not be fluid. Um, scratchy. <laughs> scratchy. So when what happens when fluid meets scratchy, you get an absolute ugly mess. It's so, a train wreck. Uh, we, and and I'll, I'll point out, like, look at the bottom of page two. Look at, well, look at Submariner's head and face and eyes on the bottom of page two. Yes. It, uh, it, I mean, his ear is just barely drawn. <laughs> you know, his eye looks like some kind of Asian caricature or something or other. Uh, it's just... And, uh, and, and, and the cheekbone shadow, the shadow under his cheekbone done with scratchy cross-hatching. Oh, yeah, it's and, ugly. In this combo of Colin and Coletta... I noticed that Coletta's worst habits really get emphasized. And I think part of it is because he had this really sort of sketchy, fluid kind of stuff he was working with. And one of the reasons it's hard to ink colon is because there's a lot of graphite on the page and there's a lot of sort of grayish stuff. So if you're inking it, it's sort of hard to see where have I inked and where is it still this pencil? And we get a lot of stuff that just doesn't reproduce well. Yeah. in here. And that's one of the main jobs of an inker is to make it reproduce well. That's the whole reason they had inkers. <laughs> yeah. Okay, go on. That's absolutely terrible. So we have Behold, the start of a sensational new Marvel feature, Prince Namor the Submariner. Let me just point out, there's one question that is often a little, can be a little wishy-washy in Atlantis stories, is can regular Atlanteans swim, or do they just walk on the bottom of the ocean? And I notice here that on page three, some of the guards that are attacking uh, Submariner seem to be flying, but they also seem to have kind of wing things on, almost as though they need those to fly, quote unquote. But I don't know, it, it's, it ends up being very wishy-washy in terms of how they handle that. Yeah, you're right. It's very odd. Right away, we have the name of the story is the start of the quest. And I like quest stories. I'm loving our current quest story in Doctor Strange. I'm enjoying the quest story in Tales of Asgard. And I'm glad to have another one. And I did not remember this story as being great, but I read it again. And I really like the writing. I like Colin's pencils. I love Lee's writing on this story. Or, you know, if you want to give Colin co-credit on the writing. If you try to see past the inks on this one, I like this as a first issue. We begin... Namor is returning from the events of Daredevil number seven. Once again, Dorma has lured him home to try to keep Krang from taking over Atlantis. But then she is fickle. And <laughs> <laughs> they may have the worst relationship in the Marvel Universe, which is saying a lot. That would be saying a lot. <laughs> I, I think they may have a more toxic relationship than Hank and Jan. They may have a more toxic relationship than Reed and Sue. <laughs> She's saying C certainly than Reed and Sue. Reed and Sue yeah. can can have some toxicity to it, but generally is is not nearly as bad as the others. Yeah, it's really bad. Uh, she says, "Let me help you, Namor. Together we can regain your crown." And he says, "Unhand me, woman! Have you forgotten that none may touch the royal personage? Namor needs no help. You presume too much, my lady." And she responds, again, you reject me. Again, you ignore my heart. You square my love. But take heed, my prince. If I cannot have you, no one shall. So that's toxic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. That's, uh, these two aren't treating each other the way a partner should treat someone else. And indeed, she then calls a bunch of guards to attack him and they knock him out. He gets all chained up. He gets taken before Krang. Krang is like, yeah, I'm taking over now. I'm going to throw you in jail. He gets thrown in jail. Now, 
Colin, I think, is doing a perfectly fine job of this story, but he's not doing as good a job as Kirby or Wood would have done with it. And I think one example of that is just when he's thrown into a jail cell with bars on it on page five, there's nothing ornate about the bars. Yeah. And like yeah. Kirby or Wood would have had florid bars. They would have had, you know, bars that had some personality to them. The, the only thing we have here is little sort of arrowheads on the very bottom of them. So there yeah. is something. But yeah, you're right. He is not, you know, and Krang has a throne that is somewhat of an amorphous blob. You know, he's some attempt to give him a cool looking throne, but uh, not the sort of wonderful throne Kirby would have given us or would for that matter. Dorma, again, flips on a dime, comes back to Namor, says, no, 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 I want to help you again. And they talk about, uh, have you so soon forgotten the enchanted trident of King Neptune? And they're talking about how there's this enchanted trident that could solve all of Namor's problems if he now goes on a big quest to find it. And he does. I also don't like the way Colin draws the bejeweled trident at all. It looks like wrinkly and tacky and weird. It looks like a bad prop to a school play. Under the hands of a better inker, I think that could have turned out okay. But yeah, I'm not a big fan. And that that crown... Uh, that just looks like it's got like a kelp <laughs> sticking out of the top of it is uh, underwhelming. <laughs> yes. What the hell's up with that ground? Yeah, it looks like a salad bowl. King Neptune eventually disappeared with his trident, and they're like, if I can find the trident, I can be in charge again. She says, okay, I'm going to melt your bars. I'm going to let you go. And he goes off in search of the trident, then has to fight a gigantic squid for some object that will be the first step in getting to the trident. And that is where we end on our cliffhanger. So that is this issue. I say here, nice splash page if it wasn't caught. A colon actually draws Atlanteans as if they're swimming, which is nice. But you're right. He doesn't really. He always draws Namor as if he's swimming. But the others are kind of just walking. Yeah. Time travel and under the ocean. Both of those are just treated as interchangeable with I've gone to an alien world. <laughs> yeah. Including on the bottom of page nine, where Dorma is shedding a tear <laughs> on the bottom of the ocean, which she wipes away. <laughs> she doesn't want to get wet. <laughs> it's uh, this. This was years and years before SpongeBob, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, for those of you not uh, who don't have kids that were uh, young during the SpongeBob era, uh, he would take a bath, even though he was living <laughs> under the sea. Unfortunately, though. I never like Namor as much as a hero as I do when he's a villain. Yeah. Or an anti-hero. You know, it's it's when he's just like, oh, I'm trying to be a good king to my people. Like, okay, I mean, <laughs> that's good. Thank you. That's not, you know, but yeah, I'm just, it just doesn't hold my attention too much. And yeah, you're right. If Wally Wood had been put on this as writer and artist, yeah. I think this could have been crazy good. I went ahead and I looked ahead. Tragically, Kaleida will ink this book for nine issues. And then Bill Everett will take over the inking, which is fascinating. Yeah. Namor creator Bill Everett. And then Dick Ayers, who does a perfectly fine job. And then eventually Everett takes over all the art, which is fascinating. Colin comes back. We're going to have quite a story with this book, but we're going to suffer through nine issues. Colin credited as Adam Austin being inked by Kaleida. And so we're just going to have to suffer through that. So we will do that next. Let's go ahead and jump to The Incredible Hulk to live again. We have a bizarre first page in which Kirby seemingly has all on his own decided, I've got a first page of a bunch of soldiers who are in the leader's headquarters. 
And I will go ahead and include something that Stan Lee surely did not have in his plot. Um, there is a huge plastic replica of the Hulk that everyone is completely ignoring. And it says, Earth-shaking Ender's Note. In case you're wondering, this is a plastic replica of the Hulk, which the leader had used for study. A Troy Bizarre thing. Take a Stanley story, add Jack Kirby artwork, mix with Mickey DeMeo inking and Artie Simon lettering. Presto, instant confusion. So Stan is... <laughs> Stan is saying, like, uh, okay, Jack, if you're just going to have this giant plastic replica here, we'll just ignore it. The soldiers are all swarming over the leader's headquarters, including Talbot and Ross, but they can't find Bruce Banner. His dead body has disappeared. Well, it turns out that Rick Jones is just constantly eating Glenn Talbot's lunch. And <laughs> once again, Rick Jones has managed to sneak into this massive army invasion and sneak out with Bruce Banner's dead body. And he steals an ambulance truck. <laughs> it's yes. like that that doesn't seem like that's yeah which i guess means he left his own hot rod behind and then he so. goes ahead brings banner to his secret cave which i thought got destroyed at some point but anyway he brings him to his secret cave subjects him to gamma rays he turns into the hulk at the top of page three the first panel what what is rick doing there how, <laughs> how is he carrying bruce banner on his back while doing things with both of his hands he seems he seems to have tied him to his waist there's like rope around his banner's waist there maybe i don't know but just looking at like uh okay no (laughs) that does not work so he turns bruce banner into the hulk to save his life which works and so we're gonna have this thing going forward where oh, I can't ever turn back to bruce banner again because then the bullet in my brain will kill me but then they decide to toss in just as an extra wrinkle that like, oh, and now I've got Bruce Banner's intelligence again, more so than I ever have before, because in the past they've had like, oh, he's got Bruce Banner's intelligence, but he still has the Hulk's personality. But now for the first time, he basically has Bruce Bruce Banner's Banner's personality personality and intelligence. Although as we go forward in the following months, that will just sort of slowly fall away. There'll never be a moment when they're like, oh, now he's gone back to the Hulk that we know. No, it's just really, it's almost like they sort of slowly forget that that's what they're supposed to be doing. Yes. So then... Meanwhile, we cut to the leader. It's always been very unclear the degree to which the leader is working for the Soviets. Here he is talking to the Soviets. You know, yes, I had the Observatron and I lost it. Forget the Observatron. I've created my own offensive weapon, which is much better than the Observatron, which is just a defensive weapon. And I will go ahead and use it to destroy the Southwest Missile Base if you give me one billion dollars. So... Well, I'm impressed it does not is not one million. You would think in the nineteen sixty five panic it would be one million and we could make fun of it. But no, the leader, forward thinking, understands that inflation is coming and goes ahead and asks for one billion dollars. The leader, it turns out, has built a massive, massive humanoid this time that has been under a gigantic yellow tarp seemingly that no one has noticed. And then he has to shoot a sci-fi gun out to make the giant humanoid come alive. I've always loved the humanoids. I think a giant humanoid is a nice development in the process of a humanoid and that kirby tech gun he uses to activate the gargantuan uh humanoid i love that device yeah uh, and what i really love about it is you see it on the first panel and it's got this little headset looking thingy but then in the second panel he has lowered the gun and you see that that headset looking thing is something that's stiff. One way or the other, it just looks like Kirby putting more thought into these devices and how they work and how they look than you would expect anyone to. So then once again, we get the further adventures of Glenn Talbot, security chief who has no idea when he's being eavesdropped on, trying to win over Betty Ross and saying, you must accept it, Betty, learn to forget him. He was a traitor not worthy of your love. 
not realizing he is being eavesdropped on by Bruce Banner and the Hulk's body, who is listening to the whole thing and thinking, goodbye, my darling, bless you for your trust, and thinking, well, she really should be with Quintel anyway. But then there's a phone call saying giant humanoid attacking, and they all have to run off and go deal with it. Of course, R.E.M.N. shoot a missile at the humanoid, which the Hulk accidentally runs into, which makes it look like he was protecting the humanoid, which makes it look like they're working together. The Hulk gets in a giant fight against the humanoid. Once again, we have Rick Jones overhearing stuff he should not overhear. He hears that they're going to send a huge Sunday punch missile to nuke both the Hulk and the humanoid. Again, you don't want people overhearing these things, but uh, Rick Jones does, and he tries to intervene to save the Hulk and the humanoid, I guess, from the gigantic missile, which is being shot at them. The Sunday Punch missile looks fantastic. Yes. (laughs) And it looks sort of like some of the stuff we'll be seeing of S.H.I.E.L.D. tech in the next few months. It's like Kirby's in this sort of mode of like, okay, yeah, let's go ahead and get this like super science military gear here. Um, but, you know, I one of the things I do in my life is I am an Adobe certified instructor and I train Adobe software for folks. I have actually done training on military bases uh, several times in my career. Have you ever been on a military base? No. Not, yeah, they're not easy to get on as a civilian. <laughs> there's checkpoints, there's guards, there's you know, <laughs> fencing, there's all sorts of stuff. Uh, somehow... Talbot doesn't seem to think any of that matters here. So this is not the first time that the Hulk has had Bruce Banner's intelligence. It is also, most importantly, not the last time because, you know, my all-time favorite Hulk writer is Bill Mantlo, and I'm a huge fan of Bill Mantlo's run on the Hulk in the 80s. He had an epic storyline in which the Hulk had Bruce Banner's intelligence and ended up finding the leader in the humanoids line. But one of the things that was an issue in that run is that the Hulk couldn't get that strong because he couldn't get that mad. He was too smart to let his rage take over him. And so he was less strong. And he was constantly trying to tap back into his inner monster to try to get the strength he needed, especially when he was fighting those damn spongy humanoids. <laughs> you know, he was too in control of himself to really become as strong as he wanted to get. But as we said before, every Hulk storyline they ever did was already present in those first six Kirby issues, <laughs> and uh, including a Hulk having Bruce Banner's intelligence. Well, it, it, the sixth one was, was Ditko. But yes, yeah. in the first six issues uh, of his original series, yes. The one last thing I'll say about the story is uh, second to last panel in the story, page 10, down at the bottom center. I just noticed the uh, symmetry there of Rick now saying the Hulk doesn't know about the super missile. It'll blow him to smithereens. I've got to warn him before the countdown ends, which is a mirror of the whole origin of the Hulk in the first place. Yeah. It was like, oh, I'll put this in here as a poignant sort of, you know, or if it's just like, oh, I'm writing this stuff quickly and who oh, uh, look at what happened. Now, how much sophistication was Lee putting into these issues? It's hard to know. I gotta say page six is pretty sophisticated in terms of the love triangle of Bruce and Glenn and Betty. You know, yeah, Lee is writing this well. Lee is writing good emotional dialogue. This is good soap operatic storytelling. It's much better than in the uh, Iron Man issue, I guess, which yes. was not written by exactly. Yeah, was not written by Lee. It was mm-hmm. written by Al Harley. A perfectly fine issue. Not great. Not terrible. Nice Kirby art. Perfectly fine. Mickey DeMeo inking. Uh, you call him Demio. I call him DeMeo. We're never going to agree. <laughs> What's well, made up? It's just a made up name. <laughs> uh, and then I'll point out that there is a Don McGregor letter in the, oh, on the letters page. Nice. Yes. But, uh, uh, Don McGregor is a writer who he wrote one of the other miniseries that Colin penciled and they reproduced straight from his pencils. Ah. Detectives Incorporated, I think it was yeah. called. Yeah, that was a Don McGregor thing. But he is most well known 
or fleshing out the Black Panther Wakanda mythos in the 70s, I guess. Yes, created Killmonger, who had gone to be one of the great MCU characters. He has letter hair. Oh, and actually speaking of letters from future Marvel writers, one thing I realized I forgot to mention when you were talking about uh, Steve Gerber writing that letter in a recent issue, one of the things he was saying was, hey, you know what would be really funny or really awesome, and I think you should do it? to bring Patsy Walker into the superhero universe. Wouldn't that be awesome? And he's like, I think it would be. Now, he is not the one who actually brought Patsy Walker into the Marvel Universe. It was Steve Englehart. But Steve Englehart and Steve Gerber were part of that same cohort of young, trippy 70s writers that were all sort of uh, buddy-buddy together, from my understanding. So I just found that interesting. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Hey, that actually happens, and it's your friend who does it. So let's move on to the Avengers number 19. Marvel proudly announces the coming of the Swordsman, the newest, most daringly different swashbuckler from the House of Ideas. I've never been a big Swordsman fan. He's pretty lame. He's got a sword. Uh, And speaking of being pretty lame, Matt, explain to me what's happening on the splash page. Yeah, what the hell? So (laughs) it's like, this is my, you know, dear listener, that I always have a problem with how do superheroes get from building to building? Like, how do they use their powers to just get around town if they don't have a car? This is one of the most bizarre. It's like, I have swords, so I can leap from building to building and then use my, stick my sword in the roof of the next building over. And in order to help me land as I leap from building to building. So anyway, we see uh, Pietro and Wanda hanging out. They're the ones who have to be minding the store at Avengers Mansion. We should say this is Lee Heck and Ayers. Yes. By Lee Ars Heck, Dick yes. Ayers And once again, Ayers and Heck do each other no favors in this stuff. I agree with you. They should have had Heck being inked by Coletta. That would have been better all around for everybody. So they get a warning on, apparently, their security systems will let them know when someone's broken into the Avengers Mansion, but doesn't seem to do anything to keep anyone out of Avengers Mansion. So uh, the Swordsman is down in the basement, it looks like, and starts trying to have a sword fight with Pietro. He's got things where, like, spins his sword like a propeller and it's just all the stuff it's like dude if you have a sword just treat it like a sword so he's fighting with uh scarlet witch and quicksilver after the end of the fight swordsman says you know aha so i was only fighting you with the flat of my blade i was not trying to harm you so now i have proven my worthiness to be in the avengers yes <laughs> <They're just> like, <laughs> no what well, I mean, that is how Hawkeye joined. <laughs> I mean, in all in all fairness. So then Captain America shows up because of the alarm, and then they're trying to figure out something about the swordsman, get some background information. So to the microfiche library, <laughs> they say, let's check him out in our microtape identity file. They find out he's got a really bad reputation. He's been exiled from multiple countries in Europe. Then he is able, the swordsman, to knock the lights out and then seemingly disappear. And then Quicksilver says, all right, well, the bad guy's gotten away. Let's go get him. And then Captain America takes this bizarre attitude where he's like, it won't be that simple. He'll lose himself in the night. He could be anywhere by now, but you've been getting restless. I guess you could use a little action, so try to find him if you wish. I'll stand by the store. And then he just goes and works out. And it's like, that's a bizarre attitude to take Captain America. It really is. So then meanwhile, we see that Captain America is still pining after Nick Fury like a lovesick teenager, which, you know, again, 
odd. Hawkeye then shows up in the middle of Cap's workout and finds out that the swordsman has shown up. And he's like, the swordsman? No, it can't be him. He's the one man in all the world I used to fear. Apparently, Hawkeye was, uh, you know, orphan who hung around the carnies and was eventually taken on as an apprentice by the swordsman. So, yes, I'm a master of the swords. Why so will train you to be a master of the bow and arrow? Oh, okay, whatever. Um, <laughs> Much so- later, Tom Falco will be writing Hawkeye in his first sort of half solo book, and he'll be like, yeah, that makes no sense. Uh, the swordsman actually brought in a master archer to train <laughs> Hawkeye, who then becomes a character <laughs> named Trickshot. So uh, it turns out the swordsman is a bad guy, and he's stealing money from the carnival. Hawkeye won't join him in his life of crime, and so the swordsman thinks he's killed Hawkeye, but it's one of those things where, as you've talked about, oh, he's fallen from a great height, so we can just assume he's dead and just walk off and never really think about him again. Uh, so apparently that's what uh, the swordsman did to Clint. We see that we see Hydra. So this is, once again, the first month Hydra's been introduced. They're being introduced in two separate books, and they are surveilling Nick Fury's office, which seems to have been abandoned for a while. No one's in there. And they see, oh, the one thing we can see is on his desk is this mail from the Avengers to Nick Fury. So then they use some kind of super science gun to retrieve the letter. And it turns out that Nick Fury was never getting the letters. Presumably he had already headed off to S.H.I.E.L.D. and hadn't been going to this office in the CIA anymore or something. I don't know. Anyway, so the um, letter is addressed to from the Avengers to Colonel Nick Fury, Pentagon, Washington, D.C. So this is presumably his office in the Pentagon, which how Hydra got into the Pentagon which, again, a fairly secure building, how they got in there in order to get a letter that had been addressed to the Pentagon. Uh, Very unclear. Yes. Then we see some hoods playing poker, and uh, they're talking about how the swordsman is offering money for, um, what is it? Well, we should be clear. We should be clear that Hydra sees, oh, it's just a letter from Captain America to Nick Fury. Who cares about this? They crumple it up. They throw it out the window, and it lands on the street. And, right. <laughs> and then a, uh, a two-bit hood manages to say, like, I crumpled a piece of paper. I got to read that. <laughs> and, then and it turns out the swordsman has put the word out on the street that anything that can help him trap an Avenger, he will pay good money for. So then this guy, you know, contacts the swordsman, gives him the letter. And then he's like, OK, so give me the dough. He's like, sure. After it's worked. Now get out of here. So then he writes a letter back to Captain America as though he is Nick Fury. And Captain Captain America just leaps for joy. <laughs> I've got my answer. Fury wants me at last. And he's like literally jumping up in the air like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> it is a truly hilarious panel. Like, it is truly hilarious, I guess. <laughs> like, you, you will never, ever see Captain America as happy as he is here because Fury wants him. It's just, this is not what we want from our heroes. We do not want our heroes to be this needy. Yeah, there's some friction with the rest of the Avengers about like, hey, you're just going to be a part-time Avenger now? What's going on? And he's like, basically, don't hassle me. They're having a hard time. Hawkeye is able to track down where all of this stuff came from, takes care of the hoods, and then finds out that Cap is walking into a trap. He then goes back to Avengers Mansion, gets the rest of the Avengers, and goes off to try and catch up with Cap, who has just shown up in a shady-looking warehouse on the docks which is where he's been told Fury's office is. So, you know, it could be a secret front or something (laughs) like that. He thinks to himself, 
I know the government is trying to save money, but this is ridiculous. This can't be the office of Colonel Fury. I wonder why he'd pick a rundown warehouse as a conference site. Yes. Oh, uh, Cap, you're an idiot. The swordsman shows up, and he somehow slides down a rope with his sword. I just, once again, I just he's never made any sense to me. They're, you know, having this whole battle back and forth. <laughs> we'll say on the top of page 17, we see Pietro. It really does look like his eyes are crossed. Yeah. <laughs> it's not, not working out well. Apparently, they then have a little tracking device that they all wear, it sounds like, and they've just forgotten about it. And the Avengers finally show up. The swordsman already has Captain America out on a plank off of the edge of a building under construction. Let me join the Avengers or Captain America dies because that makes tons of sense. And then so Captain America is like, no, they'll do it because they're noble. So I must be more noble and sacrifice my life so that the swordsman can't become an Avenger. <laughs> it's like, dude, just tell him, yes, you're an Avenger now and then beat him up. I mean, then they're all shocked that he has just plunged to his death for them. And then that's the cliffhanger. Yes. We end with Cap Midair. Yes. And I believe Wood actually inks the next issue, if I'm not mistaken, doesn't he? Yeah, I don't know. This is in the bottom quintile of Avengers stories here. It's, yes. you know, the art is not great. The writing is odd. The char- the new character they introduced is just lame. The backstory with Hawkeye doesn't really even seem to make much sense. The security in Avengers Mansion is about as good as that warehouse on the docks. It's, uh, this is another issue that was published this month. Yes, and Captain America, most importantly, a complete dork, the entire issue, blunders into the trap idiotically based on his desperate need to be liked by Colonel Fury, someone who, by the way, he has never met in the comics. I guess we saw them meet in a Sergeant Fury and his Howling Commandos issue. Yes. We've never seen them meet in modern day. Yeah. We just have this love story from afar. At least it makes a little more sense now that we've seen that Nick Fury is leading an intelligence agency that is a cool intelligence agency that would be cool to join. And I think it's really interesting that they've already got Hydra showing up here the Mm. same month they're introduced in Nick Fury because Lee knows Hydra is a great addition to the Marvel Universe. That's cool, but it's a terrible issue. Yeah, Yeah, the swordsman will appear a lot. It's not like this is a lame one-off villain. This is a lame (laughs) multi-appearance villain who we're going to be seeing a lot of very much in the next couple of years. And then who later has a redemption arc and then becomes a hero and then Then ends up sacrificing himself nobly or something like that, right? Becomes a walking piece of vegetation at some point. Um, (laughs) And and also he has appeared in the MCU. Yes. Oh, yes. He was, yes, Tony Dalton played him in the MCU and yes. uh, did a very good job. Yes. I, I like Tony Dalton as a swordsman quite a, quite a lot in the MCU. Yes, the, and he yes. also had a redemption arc there. The MCU swordsman was uh, much, much better than the comics swordsman. As soon as I saw Tony Dalton was playing the character, I'm like, oh, that's perfect casting. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, yeah I say in my notes, okay, issue, swordsman will have legs, pretty good origin for Hawkeye. Captain America seems so pitiful. That was the end of my notes. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Uh, during the flashback to uh, Hawkeye's origin, there's one point where he's running away from the swordsman. You see a sword swinging around him, and it says, this is your last chance. The next time I throw my sword like a boomerang, I won't try to miss. <laughs> so he's his sword can be a boomerang, too. And then meanwhile, Hawkeye is somehow getting up to the top of the high wire by swinging up there somehow, and he's got two bows, one in each hand, while he's somehow swinging up to the high wire. A, 
how the heck does that work? And B, how is getting up on the high wire going to help you when he's <laughs> trying to track you down? It's like you're a baseball player in a rundown now. <laughs> it's just uh, not uh, not great. So anyway, that's all I had on this one. Unfortunately, as has been happening a lot lately, we are limping to the conclusion <laughs> of this month <laughs> with Avengers. Although, fortunately, as you pointed out, we're going to be having better features on average in the second episodes for each month than we have before. Avengers won't be one of those for a while. No, we've still got, oh my God, we've got 21 <laughs> issues to go until John Buscema, just counting the days. But this was a fascinating second half to August 1965. I think that Nick Fury from S.H.I.E.L.D. is off to a fantastic start and Namor is off to a not entirely terrible start. Other than the inking, I thought it was a pretty good issue. And we had some other good books. Good Captain America, good Hulk. Good to see a lot of Kirby showing up where he can. So we had perfectly fine books this month. And we had two moon men named Edom and, Gud- and Gouda. <laughs> good God, I wonder if we ever see it, if they ever show up again in the Marvel Universe. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't that be awesome if somebody pulled up Edom and Gouda showing up in some alien invasion? <laughs> Uh, no, probably wouldn't be. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> okay, well, I think we've uh, talked enough about this. I look forward to next month where we've got some more interesting stuff. Meanwhile, it's been interesting going ahead and doing this here in person where we can actually make eye contact sometimes with these things. Yes, I hope that the audio is good. I hope that we're not talking over each other too much because when we record separately, we can separate out the audio tracks when we talk over each other and we yeah. can't do that here. Hopefully this was not an incomprehensible episode. <laughs> We will be back in two weeks. We will talk to you soon. And when next we meet, Steve will have done his presentation and we'll be able to report back on that. Yes. Yeah. I I hope I saw you in Charlotte, uh, either at the panel or at my table in Artist Alley. If you did, thanks for coming out. You know, I feel like I need that time travel grammar book from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy (laughs) to talk about this. I will and have been something or other. Thanks a lot, folks. We always appreciate it. Thanks and stay safe out there. Bye, guys. Thanks for listening to Marvel Reread Club. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Your reviews and ratings are a great help and always appreciated. We love hearing from you. Go to MarvelRereadClub.com to find notes and join the discussion about this episode. We're also on Facebook and Instagram. See you next time.